everybody. Welcome back to Unemployed with Anna Roisman. I am so excited for our episode today. We have an amazing guest. He's a very funny actor and comedian. You may know him from his podcast, Dead Eyes, and his hit streaming show, The George Lucas Talk Show, who I have known many people to be a part of. We've got Connor Ratliff on the pod today. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm psyched. I, I'm a huge fan of yours, and uh, oh, I feel like you. we've crossed paths many times ba- back at the old UCB theaters that once yes. were there, <laughs> <laughs> and now we're on Zoom. <laughs> yes, where it's safe. Where it's safe, exactly. How have you been? How uh, you know? I I hate asking that question, but I'm also I find everybody's answer to be inspiring. So how how has your year been? It's been a weird year, uh, you know, but, you know, I, I feel like when you look back every year ultimately seems kind of weird in the rearview mirror. So mm-hmm. this one, in some ways, was a very distinctive year, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, especially and- when you do what we do. Every year is weird. It's you can't tell someone it was a sa- a smooth year always. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, I'm vaccinated now and I, I, I spent all last year I, I was on tour and I ended up getting stuck in Missouri at the point where everything shut down. So I spent most of last year at my parents' house just because I was I was two hours from there whenever everything shut down. Oh, my God. And I thought I'd be there for a month, and then I was there for seven months. And so <laughs> I just I just got to go back and visit them last weekend because they're vaxxed, and my sister was uh, had gone to visit them. She hadn't seen them in over a year, and so... I took the opportunity to go back and surprise them. And That's so nice. nice. Very nice, yeah. I love that. I also love, I feel like you are not the only person I know who was displaced, uh, you know, thought, oh, yeah, two weeks, three weeks, I'll be, and then I'll head back to my apartment. And it's like, yeah, surprise. Yeah, I, I was on tour with the band Guster, and my parents had come down <laughs> to St. Louis to see, I was basically like opening for them, but not quite. I was sort of like integrating comedy into their shows. I love and that. So it's sort of like a, a weird master of ceremonies for a concert. Um, and so my parents had, you know, driven two hours to St. Louis. And I was kind of feeling bad, like, oh, I didn't have time to, like, drive up and, and visit them and see my hometown. Yeah. Where I grew up. And then, you know, within 24 hours, I was back in my old room and uh, ended up being there for the, the longest visit I've had since... High school, you know? Yeah, that's wild. That's actually just where I got to in your podcast is (laughs) that part. So it's really fun to hear you talk about it. Yeah, there ended up being a whole episode that's just about that, basically. Yeah, that's where I am. episode. Yeah. I, I love that you were on tour with Guster, too. I think we follow each other on Twitter, and they're very fans of comedy, right? I always... I didn't... Yeah. They they're very fun and they even before they got me involved they were always sort of looking for ways to make their concerts a, a mix of of hijinks and music and so um, uh, Ryan Miller and the full band had actually done a couple of shows uh, a couple of my shows at UCB mm-hmm. and and then they were like well what if you at first they had this idea of of Maybe like I did this show that was basically like an improv show at UCB where you where me and a couple of veteran improvisers would have a guest on mm-hmm. who was not an improviser or, you know, had never done improv. And we would sort of like talk them through it in front of an audience and we would kind of it was sort of like uh, 
an open book test sort of it was sort of like we would we would segue into scenes but we'd sometimes stop the scenes and sort of check in with them and see yeah. how they're doing and we did one where it was just the whole band guster was our That's guest so fun i love that and so then they were they were asking me like would you like to come on the tour and do improv and i sort of said i, I don't think I'll do something, but I don't think your audience wants to see improv. They want to see your, like, I, I basically sort of help them figure out a way of making each concert uh, have comedy, but it was like serving the, you know, when someone goes to see a band, they don't, the last thing they want to see is a comedian. But, so I sort of would come out at the beginning of every show and say like, my promise to you is that you are not losing any songs because I'm doing jokes. If anything, I'm gonna. <laughs> if anything, I'm gonna make it so that you hear more songs. Like I was sort of acting almost like a customer service rep for the audience, like where <laughs> where we would get the audience involved and we would make up songs and stuff that they all do in in their regular tours anyway. But I, I think I sort of heightened it a little bit. I, that's so cool. At least, you know, I was thinking, I'm glad they had you come and do comedy. At least they weren't like, now your turn. You're going to come on tour with us and we're going to teach you a new instrument every single night. <laughs> You're just going to play I mean, that song. I was, <laughs> I was I was always eager to pretend to play the piano. Sometimes I would sit at the piano during songs and sort of <laughs> Rolf the dog it, where I would sort of like, from certain angles in the audience, it looked like I was playing piano. <gasps> Uh, yeah, you, you know, come comedi- out dressed as like full Elton John, you know, gear, and you're like, what do you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, com- comedy people always want to be doing music, and music people always want to be doing mm-hmm. comedy. Is the yeah, is the, absolutely the is classic. the very true stereotype? So, uh, we they were always trying to get me to do more comedy stuff, and I was always trying to get involved in <laughs> in playing around with their music. You know, that's so true. Every time I talk about when I met my boyfriend, I'm like, oh well, when we met, it was at UCB East. It was like after a show, and and I left right away because I was like, I have to go to the Bowery Electric. I'm, I'm meeting a drummer I know from high school. He has a show. I'm like way cooler than this crowd. And it's just such a joke. I'm like, oh, yeah. no, nope. ended up dating the comedy person. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so this is great. I, I'm, are they going back on tour? Do you have any other plans to, to continue? I know like tours that were ended now have dates again. I don't know. It's it, I'm yeah. seeing stuff pop up. They're doing, I've seen, they're doing other performances and I, I know the hope is that, you know, we only got halfway through our tour and oh, the wow. hope is that we'll be able to continue it. I think the tricky thing is what I was doing in the show was so sort of audience interactive that I feel like it'll be a while before what I was trying to do will be fully mm. comfortable and safe again, you know? Yeah, um, I hear you. Yeah, it was, you know, we, 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 we squeezed in the half of the tour we accomplished right before everything we were doing became completely unhealthy and, and unsafe to do. Yeah, well, you're not alone. I think yeah. every a lot of shows are feeling that right now. Yeah. I, I still am interested to see how Broadway happens in the fall, to be honest. I'm like, yeah, I don't yeah. know. It, it feels foreign. <laughs> Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I mean, like, I'm I'm at the point now where I'm, you know, comfortably, I walk out of my building, I take off my mask, and I walk down the street. But then, you know, you go into every building, and I just reflexively, I just put the mask back on, and it's sort mm-hmm. of just like, this is how it is for a while. Just be- yeah. even, because, you know, I don't want to have to, I know that there are places where I could go in and it would be fine, but there is an aspect of, you just want everyone to feel comfortable. You want mm-hmm. to make sure that people feel even though you you might feel safe, you want to give that still give that little extra 
bit of reassurance yeah. to everybody else, even if it is technically okay or safe to do it. I don't know. It, it, I think, you, you know, you want to be polite and make people not feel uncomfortable, you know? Yeah. And I think everyone's at their own rate, too. Like, you know, yeah. where when where they're comfortable. Like, I saw yeah. a bunch of friends go see, like, movies this weekend because it was shitty in New York. And I was like, ooh, I don't know if I'm ready to go in a movie theater yet. Like, maybe, maybe yeah. I will be. So- I, I don't know. I'll wear yeah. my mask. I probably won't eat popcorn, you know? But I don't know. Yeah. It's weird. I, mean, I, flew, on, I flew on a plane uh, for the first time going to visit. And yeah. it's weird. It feels weird because the plane is packed. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> you're just like... Wow, I guess we're just right back in it. I mean, we're all wearing masks, but there is like I, I'm just sort of like, wow. I guess we're just right, right back in it, but we're back in reality, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I like to take it back. I like to take it before you were the performer and comedian you are today. I want to know, teenage Connor, you know, where where you were growing up? Did you ever have a job when you were in high school, or what was like the first thing you did? Yeah, I, I think the first like job where I where you know I was getting a paycheck and, and as a regular it was like holiday holiday work um at Sam Goody which was a uh, oh music, the CD store music chain yeah CDs cassettes uh I think the point I was working there vinyl was fully phased out there was no <laughs> vinyl at that point um and I worked there for a few Christmases and one of the things that I found was, you know, you want to work someplace or you think you want to work someplace that you like to shop. Mm. And then you start working there and you realize like, oh, it was a bad idea because now I don't want to shop here. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And the couple of things I remember from that were, I remember, you know, you have your employee discount, which is a dangerous thing because you're not making that much money and then you find your, and the discount isn't great, but then you find yourself, there were a couple of days they would give you where you'd have an extra discount oh, and you'd find yourself spending most of the money that you earned on those special employee discount days, which always felt to me like, oh, this is a con. They're getting, they're getting (laughs) all the money they're paying me. They're getting it back. I'm spending it here. Yep. I was, uh, a very good employee by my own standards of like, I know what I like a retail worker to be like with me. Okay. And I remember there was one experience that I had where there was a manager who kept insisting that I, you know, they, they want you to go up to everybody and say, can I help you? Right. And there's a lot. Yeah. And I was always very aware of like whether or not, a customer had already been impro- been approached by another employee. Mm-hmm. And I remember there's a point where this manager got on me as, cause I was like, I know when people want to be approached and when they I have a good radar for that, when it's going to be considered kind of rude or annoying. Yeah. And this manager like was like, go up to those people. I had just seen them be approached by like at least one other employee at that point. Right. Which and should be f- enough. Yeah, and this manager was like, go up to them. And I went, and I was like, okay. And so I went up to them at the at the manager's, like, insistence. And I said, hey, can I help you find anything? And this, this guy just blew up at me. He was like, that's it. We're leaving. And he gathered, he basically, like, gathered his whole family and said, uh, I've, I've been in this store for less than a minute, 
and I've already been bothered by three different sales staff. This is too aggressive. <laughs> I'm never coming back here. And he and they and it was like six people like left. It was like his wife and his children all like left the store. And I just turned around. I remember turning around, looking at my manager, like that's why I wasn't going up to them. And the manager, and it was really satisfying. It was really, it's really satisfying when you can be proven correct in your way of doing things in front of somebody. Because it was almost, it was so pronounced that it was as if I had hired them to prove my point. Right. You know, like, <laughs> they were just. But I, I'm. But I think I have a good. I'm. A, I'm a very good. I'm a very poor cashier, and I'm a very good um, just retail worker. Other than other than cashiering. Mm-hmm. Well, that's because you can read people. Obviously, you do that in your in your life now, and you've done it all through improv over the years, where you have to be able to see like how someone feeling. You know, I I know what I like. A, I know what I like in a store in terms of displays and and organization, and I know what I like as a customer in terms of uh, what I. F- I like not being har- feeling harassed or watched by sales staff, but I, I like it when sales staff are approachable. Yeah. So it's that thing of like creating a, a world where you don't feel like you're having to search when you need help, but you also don't yeah. feel like they're like on top of you, you know? Totally. I felt the same way when I worked in retail. Like I was just like, you don't, I don't want to annoy people because I know when I come into this store and they're like, can I help you? And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm just looking. If you say, if, if you're if they're looking for something and they need help and they're in a rush, they'll let you know. Like there are yeah. the customers that will say, "Yeah, I do need help. I need to find this one exact item or whatever." But yeah, I, I get that. So was so that, that was, your that was your first retail job? Did you have to work? Did you work in any others? Um, in college, uh, I had summer jobs. Okay. Um, and those were always terrible. Like I was, and, and I, I was always bad at finding jobs. Like I, I felt like my friends were all better at getting like a good job or a fun job or a job that paid well. Were they jobs like, that like, did you go away to school or did you come home and have to get a job in the summer? I, the first two years I was in school, um, I was at the university of Missouri, Columbia. I grew up in Jefferson city. And I remember one summer my job was, uh, I just like got it out of the classified ads in the newspaper. And I remember I went and applied for a job at a factory. Um, and when I was waiting in the, in the like waiting room, filling out the form, they had all these things that they wanted you to sign that were about like, what happens if you get like maimed by the machinery? Yeah. And I remember thinking, I can't, do it. like, I, I can't, I, it's a summer job. I can't work any place where they're asking these questions off the bat. <laughs> So I ended up being a, a ca- I ended up being a cashier in a cafeteria in a state office building. Okay. And it, it was probably maybe the least happy I've ever been was working at that job. Um because the managers of this cafeteria were an elderly couple and they made you memorize all of the prices. Like <laughs> and, and you couldn't they like charged- ring it up? Like no, I had to learn like dozens of things and you had to be able to recognize them as they went through and you had to be fast about it. Wow. And and they also they were sticklers about if they took, if someone took an extra like package of jam or butter or something like you had to know that's 3 cents, that's 5. Like <laughs> there're all these little like particulars and and it was just really like 
I remember thinking like this is a great motivation to like not end up in a job like <laughs> where you're miserable all the time because it's exhausting. And because yeah. basically you're standing all day. You're I was standing behind a cash register and for two or three periods during the work day, uh, it was so busy that you were overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Because everyone in this office building was either coming for breakfast, coming for lunch, coming for like a coffee break or whatever. And then the rest of the day, you're just standing there. Memorizing how much a pack of gum costs. (laughs) Yeah. And it it takes up so much of your brain. And then then there's like hours that go by that that feel like twice as long as they really are because you've got nothing to do. And then suddenly periods of like you're so busy that you think you're going to lose your mind. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that was a really horrible job. <laughs> and I remember, I think the, the other summer job that I got was working at a like daycare uh, place. Okay. And that was much With kids? easier. For With you, kids. Like, yeah. I, it was just basically babysitting. So you're basically like, you, you'd ha- you, there were a few of us there and you'd have periods where they're doing like playing with toys periods where they're playing with like arts and crafts stuff. And then periods where they're outside in the playground and you're basically just making sure that every kid is reasonably happy and they're not hurting each other or themselves. And, uh, and, and that was interesting because you know, it's, it was all, I mean, you realize when you work with kids, you know, like that these kids spend so much time like lying about, what they did or didn't do to one another. So like they spend like telling on each other and then lying about stuff. And so, so many little kids, there were just so many interactions where you'd see a kid take a toy from someone else. And then that kid would say, they took this from me. And you'd go to them and be like, did you take that from you? And they'd say, no. And, and you just, (laughs) it was a fascinating thing behaviorally because you were sort of like, uh, it was like you were policing these like, three and four year olds you know yeah um (laughs) they do lie so much i'll never forget you made me think my sister was four years old i think five years old and she decided she didn't want bangs anymore Mm -hmm. so she straight up took her bangs and like took a scissors and like cut to her head thinking that gets rid of bangs left the scissors and the hair on the staircase in our house. And my mom came home and was like, what did you do to your hair? And she's like, I didn't do anything. You know, she denied everything. And we're like, you left the evidence out. Yeah. Dumbass. (laughs) We should be teaching our kids how to yes and is the moral (laughs) of the story. Yeah. That's so funny. But I, th- I think those were the f- the few sort of jobs I had before, like, graduating from college. And and then when I was trying to be an actor, mm-hmm. it was a lot of temping, you know, because I never, I never, um, I never waited tables. The only restaurant job I ever had was one summer um, I was a dishwasher. Mm-hmm. Um, this was after, this was actually after... I, I, I went to drama school in England and I moved to London and for a couple of years I was working uh, first I tried temping uh, and, and uh, that temping was really in, this was in London after school in London yeah and it was just bad because you know you'd you get a temp job and then you might get an audition and you'd have mm-hmm. to like you'd have to try to get out of it and it's just hard I don't know how people really do it because 
it's one thing if you work someplace and they know you're an actor and you can kind of get them to understand, but with a temp job, all they know is they hired you for that right. afternoon. So well, you that's where all your childhood lies come in handy. You know what I mean? You whip those out and you're good to go again. Yeah, but it doesn't take long before you sort of burned your bridges with the temp agency because oh, yeah. they get they get the complaint. You know, like you don't get a lot of passes for that. And I was like, I don't know how you sustain this. Am I supposed to scam every temp agency in London? <laughs> and there's not that many, you know, like after a while you, you know, you've burned so many bridges and it's all for auditions for things that you're not booking, you know? So yeah, it's not like it's- you're even benefiting from these lies and these betrayals. You're... You're just continuing to try for it. And I worked at Ticketmaster for, I guess, about a year in Leicester Square in London. That mm-hmm. was a really horrible job. Um, <laughs> because you're tourist you're, trap. You're walking, you're walking yeah. through like a big bustling uh, uh, area in London, and then you're going into this sort of nondescript mm-hmm. office. It's inside one of those. It's like being in one of the buildings in Times Square. Yeah, of, I was going to say, it's the Times Square. Like, oh, oh, I never imagined that there's like so many unhappy people in these big, bright buildings. <laughs> right. You know, and you, you leave and you're like walking past, you know, movie theaters and legitimate theaters. And you're just like, and I'm, all I'm doing is working at Ticketmaster. <laughs> and it was really bad because people are mad at you at Ticketmaster all the time. They're mad because of all the processing fees. They're mad because they didn't get the tickets they wanted. One big thing was that in England, um, because sports fans are so violent, potentially. Okay. Like, and this is a weird thing because we think of, you know, I, th- I think of America as a, you know, violent place with a lot of sports obsessives. But in some ways, the sports obsession in America is sort of, it's it's diluted a little bit in that there's school sports and then there's, you know, mm-hmm. different leagues. You know, like, whereas in England, it struck me that you had your home team and that's what you, that's what you were obsessed with. And mm-hmm. they didn't have the same kind of school sports that were as, you know, organized and and sort of codified and everything. So you just had like, if you grew up and you were just like a Man United fan, then that was just meant everything to you. Mm-hmm. So when they when they have football over there, um, the fans of one team sit in one area and the fans of the other team sit oh. in another area. And there is no, you can't sit in the same area <laughs> at all. Wow. And furthermore, like one time I was in Liverpool, because I went to school in Liverpool in England, and one time I saw what looked like a parade of grown men. <laughs> they were being marched to the train station by police on horseback. And it was just like a very long line of people. And I wondered, what am I seeing? Like, what's going right. on here? They were the fans of an opposing team that had just played a game in Liverpool. And they were being marched to the train station to make sure they leave town after the game. Oh, my God. With security and everything. Like, let's and get like, them out. <laughs> how does this work? You can't just stay in the town and go for dinner or go to a pub. Right. And like, no, you have to leave town. Like, you can get in your car in that town and drive back to Liverpool. It's still a free country. But... That's how serious they are about, like, the sports obsession over there. Weird. And so at Ticketmaster, in our offices, whatever sports games we'd be selling tickets to, mm-hmm. they would this Ticketmaster would only be handling one side or the other of any given football club. Whoa. So let's say how you call... How do they pick? <laughs> well, and someone else would be selling... Like, the, the the other team, you'd have to go to another place to sell. So they have certain contracts with certain places. So mm-hmm. if you called up 
and and it, let's say it was uh, um, Liverpool versus Leeds or something. I don't know mm-hmm. anything about. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't care. I don't, it's not something I follow. It I just right. had to learn it for this job. If you were calling and you said, and, and we're let's say we're selling the Liverpool side of the game. Okay. And it was going to be in Liverpool, and that's what we're selling is the Liverpool half of the stadium. Right. If you called up and said, I want to buy a ticket for the Leeds uh, match against Liverpool, I would have to say, I'm sorry, I can't sell it to you because you <laughs> said it, you called it the Leeds <gasps> match. You're a Leeds fan, and we're not. We're only selling to Liverpool fans. Oh shit! L- that's let's say you called up and you said. Hi, I'm a Liverpool fan. I want to buy a Liverpool ticket to the Liverpool side of things. And then we get through and you give me your mailing address and it's in Leeds. Then I would have to say, I'm sorry, I can't sell you this ticket because you live, you live in Leeds. And therefore, the assumption is that you are lying to try to get into the other uh, I guess they're not the, worried about making money. Well, it's just what, well, but I always thought like, well, what if you grew up in Liverpool and you moved to Leeds, but you wanted to go back and you still support? <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, nope, odds are it's somewhat like we just got, they were just, did you ever get into was, those conversations with people where they were like, no, let me explain. I swear. You, I'm you a start fan. Because you get screamed at all the time. You'd have to hang up on the person because basically they would be like, I want a ticket to the Liverpool match. You start to buy it. They give you your, their address. It would be in Leeds. You can say, I'm sorry, I can't sell it to you. <laughs> and then they would just start cursing at you and screaming. And you just have to hang. And they'd be furious with you. Oh, my um, God. That's dramatic. <laughs> it was really stressful. It was really stressful. It was another job as well that I remember... I lived in London I, for a summer. I didn't know any. I went to an acting school one summer, and which, I which acting school? Oh, it was uh, the the Method Acting Studio. <laughs> it was fucking wild. But I made nice friends and I had nice teachers. But I just I didn't know any of the sports world there. I saw Blood Brothers every week, like at least yeah. seven or eight times. That was <laughs> I I saw Blood Brothers once during the time I lived in England. Uh, <laughs> I, I loved it. I was so young and I, yeah. I was like 16 and I went home and I listened to the whole CD in my dorm room that night. And I was like, oh, my God, I love this show. Yeah. So emotional. <laughs> I um, I remember I bought a couple of tickets when I worked at Ticketmaster. And what I remember is that it was a similar problem, which is like I ended up spending money that I made at Ticketmaster <laughs> to buy tickets. I remember specifically... Uh, Bruce Springsteen had started touring with the E Street Band again, and I'd never seen them perform mm-hmm. live. And it was one of those things where I could basically, when the tickets went on sale, I could just open up the thing and pick the first ticket. You know, like oh could, wow! And it, it still wasn't the best ticket. It was like row M or something. It was good for the but size then, of the arena. Did Ticketmaster at least give you a discount? Yeah, but it was one of those things where like it's still expensive and I'm not yeah. making very much money per hour and I can't really afford that. So it was another like dangerous job where you're tempted to buy the product of the place that you're working for. Oh, yeah. They um, used to make me buy a fucking Caesar salad at the steakhouse I worked at. I was like, I'll, I'll just get a Caesar salad. It's the cheapest thing on the menu. And I'd buy it at like 20% off. And I'm like, cool. That was like most of my hourly pay just now. <laughs> Yeah, and it was also I right out of right out of drama school, I got cast in a lead role in a play in London that was only Sick. running it was only running for like 8 weeks. It was a new play, it was really good. It was at the Royal Court Theater. That's um, which huge. At, which at the time was at a theater, the Royal Court was like b- renovating or building their proper space, so they'd actually moved temporarily 
into a theater. I think it was the Ambassadors Theater in the West End. So it was a proper, like, West End venue. Yeah, that's awesome. The thing that was awesome about it was also the thing that kind of ruined my life for a little while, which was, you know, I, I was paid to rehearse this play for a few weeks, and then it ran for, like, eight weeks. And it was designed to be a limited run. It was part of this new plays festival. And during that period, I was being paid so well, even though it wasn't a fortune, but it was enough to live on. Like I could make my rent and my bills Mm -hmm. on that. And when that play ended, it was so much harder to go back to a a regular job. And the next year of basically working at Ticketmaster was so difficult because I was not that far from the theater where I had been working as an actor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And now I was just walking around. I'm like, I don't know if I'm ever going to book acting work again. Maybe that was just a one-time fluke. Yeah. And I know exactly how that feels. I mean, that's it's that's hard to come off that kind of a high, and then you're like, oh, yeah. fuck. I need something now because I don't know when the next acting job is. Yeah, and so that leads to the that leads to the acting work that I booked. That then is the at, at the center. This is this is uh, that was I worked in at Ticketmaster for all I think of the year nineteen ninety nine, mm-hmm. and then at the beginning of the year two thousand, I that's when I booked a small role in Band of Brothers, which that's the the central uh, um, inciting incident of my podcast, Dead Eyes, right. Um, which I read it. I read all about it. <laughs> part of the reason, part of the reason why that was such a big uh, event in my life was the setup. Prior to that, was a year of working at Ticketmaster in Leicester Square. Yeah, and then I started getting. I got an audition to go audition for Band of Brothers. Mm-hmm. And first, it was just general. You were just auditioning for what could be any part, any soldier, whatever, small part. And then at a certain point, I think I did, I, I did a, I think I did three auditions where I was like, at that point I was, I had moved back up to Liverpool and I was, as soon as I moved back up to Liverpool, um, suddenly the frequency of my auditions became greater because now it was costing me money and time every time I needed to go back down to London, which is like a three hour train ride. Okay. So now I started getting auditions once a week, twice a week, where I was like, oh, now instead of like getting auditions every three weeks or four weeks, right. I'm getting auditions all the time now that it's actually costing me a lot of money of course, yeah. to do this. That's how but I, the universe provides. <laughs> so I, I got like these multiple auditions for Band of Brothers. Each time I have to go down to London. I think one time I even remember uh, experimenting with what if I took a night bus from Liverpool to London <laughs> And that was a real nightmare because basically you arrived in London, like you left at like 10 or 11 at night or whatever, and you arrived in London before the sun had come up. Oh my God. Mm, okay. And I remember just walking around, um, I think it was- just killing time. It was, the, it was the park near Buckingham Palace. And I was just there and it was like pre-dawn, like the sun is coming up. You didn't like go exa- to a friend's apartment or anything. You were just like, I'll I didn't, just- I didn't, yeah, I didn't like know that many people at that <laughs> point in, you know, like all, everyone that I'd gone to school with, I, I hadn't necessarily, I didn't have a lot of friends in London at that right. point that I could. And also the point was like to get to the audition that morning. So I was like thinking I would sleep on the bus. I didn't sleep on the bus. I remember <laughs> just wandering around London for hours because my audition was like 10 or 11, I think. So 
so it's like 6 a.m. I'm just like staggering around London. So I, I but I did a, I had a call back for Band of Brothers. So cool. Uh, and then I had another call back for Band of Brothers where I heard you're actually up for a specific part and you're the only person that they're looking at currently for this part. So it's sort of just like confirming it. The, that's the and, dream message everyone yeah. wants to hear. <laughs> and I was sort of thinking, like, I probably won't book this. I was sort of, I, I, I was like thinking, like, I was not that confident I was going to book it, but I also wasn't nervous. Mm-hmm. I remember one of the things that the last audition I did for it, where I was in the waiting room and I was reading a book that I had brought with me, and the guy who was sort of manning the table said, "You're the only person." who's brought a book. Everyone else had been like pacing around and nervous and <laughs> like running lines and stuff. And I was like, Oh, that's probably a good sign. Like that. I, like in hindsight, I remember thinking, Oh, the fact that I was like calm enough to focus on other things probably was p- what helped me book that part. Mm-hmm. So I booked the part and I'm thrilled. I'm going to be in at least one episode, maybe two episodes, the small little speaking part in band of brothers. So cool. And, then there was a point where I went down to London for a costume fitting and they cut my hair and it was all getting ready. I was going to be filming in like a week or two, I think, at that point. And uh, I had a driver. It was one of those things where I like they picked me up in London and the driver took me up to uh, Hatfield where they were um, filming everything. And it felt very exciting and glamorous. It was such a huge production. You just felt like you were part of this enormous thing. And I was thinking... This is going to be, like, uh, the beginning of my career. It's like, mm-hmm. this is going to, like, I'll have this, and then I'll, I'll have another thing and another thing, and that's how you build a career. And then I found out that Tom Hanks was directing my episode <laughs> of Band of Brothers, that he's directing episode five. And I was just like, this is the greatest news in the world. Like, I, I'm, <laughs> yeah. the luck, I'm the luckiest guy because I'm going to get to I'm gonna get to <laughs> be directed by one of my favorite actors. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and I was nervous about it, but I was more nervous. Like, oh, I want him to like me. I want to do a good job and be impressive and all, you know, and then the, the day before I was the morning before I was supposed to go down to London to, I was supposed to go down to London on a Monday and then I was supposed to film the next day on a Tuesday. So I'd, I'd actually, because there's a thing called local hire where they're looking for people where they don't have to yeah. pay for, you know, uh, lodging or anything. So I was auditioning for this as if I was still living in London. Right. So I had booked a... Um, I love when my agents are like, are you a local hire to LA? And I was like, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, if it helps, you know. Sure. <laughs> and so I had booked a room at a youth hostel that was actually, it was like a YWCA. Okay. Um, that had been turned into a youth hostel. And I would booked a room just for the week in case I needed it. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I mean, I knew I would need it, but I didn't know how many days, whether they'd need me for another day. So I'd booked this room. So on that Monday morning, I got a phone call from my agent's office and they were in a panic and they said, um, you need to get down to London right away. And I said, no, I'm getting ready. I'm going to go to the train station this afternoon. I'll be down there. And they said, no, you need to go right now. Tom Hanks, uh, has looked at your audition tape and he's having second thoughts. (gasps) He, he thinks you have dead eyes. (laughs) And <gasps> he's watching your tape. So I they can't. had, a, they had arranged, I guess Tom Hanks had finished filming Castaway, had come in, was prepping for his episode. Somebody showed him like, here's the actor who's going to be playing the small role in this episode. 
he looked at the tape, and then I was told he thought that I had dead eyes on the sedition tape. So I, the my my reps, my agent, and my uh, and the casting people I heard were like arguing, you know, no, like give this guy a chance or whatever. So they had arranged for me to audition personally for Tom Hanks, but I had to come down right away and audition for him. So. I Jesus fled. Christ, I, no pressure at all. You were already nervous. Is this one of I'm, your first on-screen roles too? This would have been my first. Yeah, this okay. would have been I had I had just filmed weirdly I had just made an I'd filmed an indie feature that I wrote a few months earlier. I'd gone back to America for a month and filmed this uh movie with a an actor who is good friends with Tom Hanks, who's in that thing you do. He's in Larry. He would later be in Larry Crown. Like, I had, I was already thinking about how, like, oh, if there's ever small talk, I can all say to Tom Hanks, "Hey, I was just in a, I yeah. used to this movie with your friend Holmes Osborne." I, I was sort of thinking, like, should I drop his name today? You know, um, so I, I flee to the train station. I get on. I have a train ticket for later that day. I buy a second train ticket for right away. Go down to London. I am met in London by the casting director um, who takes me in a town car up to Hatfield. I later find out, and this is something that's on the podcast, I later find out that at the same time, one of the other casting directors uh, has a second town car in which there are three uh, young male actors who are in the who are the backups for if I don't make it through this process today? One of them would end up playing the part. This is all this is all stuff I found out when doing the podcast. Oh my god! Um, so I go up to Hatfield. Um, I'm waiting because I basically get there, and Tom Hanks is he's on like location where they're filming. He's like looking at stuff, so he's not there yet. So I wait in this office for a while. And then I hear this noise coming down the hallway that sounds like uh, the the noise sounds like a Tom Hanks ish noise and like <laughs> laughter of subordinates. So it's like oh, and there's this noise, <laughs> that sounds like a Tom, you know, and sounds like Tom Hanks. People laughing, all the British people who are like waiting there, they're all like, you know what this is. They're all very kind of nervous and skittish because I'm a problem. I'm a situation, you know, like I'm because they're the people who've, you know, put me in the show. Right. And now Tom Hanks has shown up and said, I don't think this guy should be in the show. (laughs) So I go into the room. Uh, Tom Hanks is there. He looks like he does at the end of Castaway when he's lost all the weight, but he's shaved the beard and cut. But he also looks like Tom Hanks having not been filming Castaway for a week or two. So he has like this gray sort of salt and pepper stubble. Okay. And he looks like. How like Michael Stipe from REM has looked at various points in his career when he looks <laughs> yeah. kind of gaunt, you know, like yeah. he's just in. And so going to the room, it's very surreal. It's probably the first really famous, maybe the most famous person I've ever at that point been in the same room with. Sure. Or in, you know, near, in, certainly in a context of just being in a room as opposed to like being in an audience or something, you know. It's surreal enough when you go to like a play and there's a famous person on the stage and you realize we're all in the same space. But yeah. to just walk into a regular room and like Tom Hanks is sitting there on the couch and he's in like sweatsuit and and I sit down and uh, shake Tom Hanks's hand and <laughs> he says, uh, "Oh, well, let's uh, let's hear it." And so we do the scene and the character in the scene doesn't say much because he's just a small character. The lines are like, yes, sir. No, sir. Sir, do you, will you be needing anything, sir? 
all the dialogue is is uttered by the casting director who's reading the scene with me. Mm-hmm. We're done in about a minute or so reading the scene. Goes by real quick. I hardly do anything. I'm very focused on what do my eyes look like. Um, <laughs> Are they awake? <laughs> yeah. And then Tom Hanks says, oh, is that it? Oh, I wish there were more. <laughs> and I am escorted out of the room. And then like five minutes later, uh, the casting one of the casting directors comes out and says, uh, they've decided to go another way. <sighs> and I immediately start crying because I'm panicked because I had just gotten like a tax bill. Mm-hmm. For something, and I was really counting on the money from the job to pay for that. And I'm like, I've already spent some of the money. And they, and she's like, Oh, no, no, you're like, the contracts are signed. You're still going to be paid for it. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, Should I? Because I also, rem- I remember thinking when I was in the room, Should I mention Holmes Osborne? Should I be like, Hey, Holmes, I just just a movie. Like, is there anything <laughs> that would like help save right. me from getting fired? And I remember thinking when she when she said, "Oh no, no, you'll still be paid." Thinking, is there anything to me saying like, "I'll do it for free," like I'll be a bargain if you? And I knew, I knew oh. that's not how anything works. But like when you're panicking, you're in that yeah. like sort of survival mode. I'm like, would it be worth mentioning to them that like I'll give you the money back if you'll let me be in Band of Brothers? <laughs> and and then. Uh, and oh. then I was basically done with acting for the most part at that point. And I went to, um, I moved to Ashland, Oregon near, I was in a small town where my best friend, uh, was, and he and his wife at the time were running a, uh, a preschool basically. Mm-hmm. And I worked there. Um, what a change from a room with Tom Hanks and you're like, uh, yeah, I just was like, uh, I, I need a break from yeah. trying show business. Uh, one, I was there for like a year and a half. I worked in the, I worked in the preschool, my friend's preschool, which that's an, that was an amazing job because that was just like, I it was half a day every day. It was basically just me and my best friend hanging out while we make sure that a bunch of kids are okay. Nice, you know. <laughs> and so it was very easy. Um, that summer when I was in Ashland, Oregon, I worked. Um, I can't remember the name of the place, but I worked as a dishwasher when the when the the preschool was closed during the summer, mm-hmm. and I hated being a dishwasher. Um, I really hated the fact that the wait staff, when they would get tips, they divide all the tips up. And I remember thinking, like, oh, the dishwasher doesn't get any of that. That's not he, right. And I hated that. I remember thinking, like, this is so un- especially because they they'd come back and celebrate if there was like a big like big tip or something. And I would just be like the the I had a reaction to the detergent, and so my hands were like uh, in really bad shape that whole oh, summer. No. And then after, and I just and then also like my meals were free, my meals were comped, uh-huh. but it also often wasn't anything I was hungry for. So <laughs> there was an additional thing where it's like whatever was there was like that's what I was eating, you know? Yep. Yeah. And oh. then. And then I moved back to New York. Or I'd never lived in New York, but I moved to New York. I moved back to a- trying to be an actor okay. in New York. And this was 2002. So it's basically like uh, a so less you took than a, a year, year off, yeah. And then you were yeah. like, all right, I think I could. Yeah, I, I got to New York right as the first anniversary of 9-11 was happening. Wow. And okay. <laughs> so it was a very strange mood in New York. It was a very specific mm-hmm. moment. 
and I kind of did what I could for a couple years to try to become an actor again. But what was immediately apparent to me was that everything I had done in London, including going to drama school, didn't matter in New York. Mm -hmm. None of my contacts in England could help me. My agent in London didn't have any juice in New York. Um, And every time I would try to do something to be an actor in New York City, it didn't work. I wrote a play and put it on in a theater at one point. Then I realized, oh, it's impossible to get anyone to come to see your play once you put it on in a theater. This is it's so wild because now you think, oh, someone who studied in England, someone who's, you know, trained in the UK. Like, I think of them as such an esteemed actor compared to like people here. It's wild. I I did one of those things where you go and audition for a casting director. Yeah. And and you like pay for the workshop and then they let you audition for them. And I remember auditioning for this casting director, and at the end of the, at the end of the session, auditioning for them, they looked at my credits, they looked at the play that I'd been in in the Royal Court, and they were like, "Why did you take this class? Why did you you should right. ha- you should have an agent? You should just be auditioning for things." It basically admitted to me like this it was sort of like this is a scam. Like, why are you doing this? You're right. a person. <laughs> we're doing this and, for extra money. <laughs> and they and they were like, "Let me give you the name of an agent that I don't know if she's taking anyone on right now, but but you should be like working." It, it was just like your audition was really good, and you have like good credits. You should be able to do this. And I I went and met with this audition uh, with this agent. And this agent, like, couldn't have been less interested. Like, it was just, every time I tried to do something, it was just, like, the, the agent was, like, um, humoring this casting director, basically. But was like, oh, yeah, we're not, I'm not taking anyone on right now. And, and so I kept trying and trying. But basically, when I got to New York, I applied for one job, which was Barnes & Noble Union Square. Okay. And I got the job, and I started working there, like, the next day. And I worked at Barnes & Noble Union Square from September 2002 until, I think, spring of 2015. Whoa. So I worked in in this job for, I think, 13 years, basically. And it was, for for 10 of those years, it was a really good job. Mm -hmm. And to the point where maybe too good a job in the sense that the the less um, validation I was getting, like I basically 2002, 2003, 2004, I was still sort of trying to be an actor, but also kind of giving up because every time I would do something, it didn't work. Yeah. And at a certain point, I was just like, you know what? I like my job at the bookstore. And as long as I can pay my bills, um, why do I need to do Like mm-hmm. I, I was very creatively lonely because I didn't have an outlet right. for any creativity. This was pre-UCB? But, yeah, it was pre-UCB. I started taking class at UCB in 2009. So okay. for that period from 2002 to 2009, I just worked in the bookstore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had we, there was the store at the time had a really great manager. And it was sort of like the flagship store in, mm-hmm. in New York and therefore in the country. Um, and the manager of that store was very high up in the hierarchy of the of the company of Barnes mm-hmm. & Noble. And he was a great boss because he basically, if you were a good employee and you were smart, he left you alone and so did your like floor manager. And so basically I sort of very quickly took a lot of initiatives at the store. I decided which sections needed to be improved just on my own. I just decided Mm -hmm. I thought their graphic novel section wasn't good enough. I thought their film section wasn't good enough. I thought there's, and so I just sort of took over these sections and made them really good. 
Well, you and said you were you knew from Sam Goody days. You know how to mer- you know how you like a store merchandise. <laughs> yeah, and and the, like there was one point where uh, he gave me a, the manager just gave me a raise. It wasn't the time of year where you got a raise. He was just like, "You're a good employee, and I'm giving you a raise." Out of, out of and and it was. I love that they took care wa- of you there. It was yeah. It really. It was so smart because basically there were, at the time, there were smart people who worked at that store and they were left alone to do a good job. Mm-hmm. And like, unless you were doing a bad job, you basically didn't get managed because, and, and the store did really well at that because like everybody who was in charge of these different sections was like really smart and mm-hmm. you, would, you were just constantly like shortlisting books and making sure that, um, you know, that. Like I, I was just on the fourth floor where they had like, you know, all most of the books. Like mm-hmm. the the ground floor of that store, it's four stories. The ground floor was like new releases. I spent like, so much time in there in that store. <laughs> Every New Yorker, yeah. I feel like yeah. it has to be in Union. I worked in Union Square at the restaurants around there, so I was always which, at the, which restaurants did you work? There? I worked at BLT Fish on Seventeenth mm-hmm. Street and BLT and then BLT Prime on Twenty First Street, and I was yeah. always in that area for five years at least. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I spent all my time really there from, from 2002 to 2015. I was there. So there was a period where I was working five and a half days a week at the store. You know, I was there uh, yeah. I had one, only one full day off for a period of time there. Wow. And and We there, probably we, crossed paths because I literally would go from BLT Fish Shack on 17th and 5th to yeah. UC, in 2009 when I started to UCB classes and I'd go yeah. to class up on 30th Street and like come back and like work a night shift and yeah. Yeah, and what was great was that, like, in that store, um, the only thing was, the thing that was bad, the one part of the, sh- uh, of the job that was bad was that there's a big area with chairs mm-hmm. where people are allowed to sit and read books. And they can, you can just sit there and read books all day. But customers want to sit down in front of the shelves. And so there were stickers on all the shelves that say, please don't sit blocking the bookshelves. <laughs> but basically every 30 seconds, someone new would come with a pile of books and their coffee from the... Uh, Starbucks. The, uh, star- from the Barnes & Noble Cafe that served, oh. Starbuck- that served Starbucks products. That's the Got line it. that I, I had to say to a lot of people. <laughs> um, and... They would sit down in front of the shelves, and then okay. you have to go up to them. Oh, I'm sorry. Actually, you can't sit blocking the shelves, and they would argue with you. And then you would point to them. Sometimes they'd say, "There's no sign." And I'd say, "That's because you're sitting in front of the sign." <laughs> and they would say, "I don't understand why I can't do this." And you'd say, "Well, it's because people can't get access to the books if you're sitting in front of them, and it is still a bookstore." Right. And this there are your college library. <laughs> there are hundreds of chairs up at the front. They're like, well, I don't want to go sit in those chairs. I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. you we are at an impasse. <laughs> These are the rules of this place. You can yeah. sit and read books for free, but you cannot sit. I, like, I would have to, ex- the number of times <laughs> I have to explain to someone, you understand, like, right now you're sitting in front of um, all of the books by, uh, you know, Robert Heinlein. <laughs> so if anyone comes into the store, um, and they want to buy a book by Robert Heinlein, they can't access those books because you're in front of them. And then yeah. the customer would very often say, um, well, then if they're looking for those books, they can ask me to move. And I would say to them, this store pays me to tell you so that our customers don't have to. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm being paid to tell you so that some poor customer doesn't have to do it for free. <laughs> and you yell at them. 
You know? Yeah. Like, you can be mad at me, but because I'm getting paid to tell you this. So that was the only part that I didn't like about the store. Yeah. During that first 10 years. But, like, then there was a period where, so I started taking classes at UCB in 2009. And so then I have a period of about about five and a half years where, um, or six years maybe, I guess, where I'm sort of rising in the ranks at UCB, going mm-hmm. from student to performer, and 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 I'm also working at Barnes & Noble Union Square. Mm-hmm. And at first it was fine. There was a weird thing as I sort of became like a house player at the theater where people who'd seen a show or other students would come and they'd be browsing at Barnes & Noble and they'd recognize me from like, uh, oh, I just saw you at UCB or something. Yeah. And, you know, you'd be like, you'd have like a pile of books you're shelving or something. There, there were also sometimes people who would come in, like improv students would come in and they'd want to ask me questions about improv. This was happening <laughs> once I'd been doing it for a few years and there'd be nothing I could do. I'd just like shelving and so I'd like answer questions about improv and they kind of would wow. have me... It was, kind of, and then until I was like done with my work and could like head to the basement to go get something else, I'd sort of be trapped, uh, <laughs> having to like be polite and answer questions about improv. Um, There's like an but, underground, you know, club at UCB. They're like, "Yo, here are Connor's hours at Barnes and Noble. Like, this is you. Have, it was you need like some free insight, improv coaching. Out. Yeah, like it, free. Like <laughs> right. I wasn't getting paid extra to answer questions about improv. They were sort of taking advantage of my. Uh, uh, kindness and my inability. I hope your advice was start an indie team and then I'm free on Sundays from three to seven to coach your indie team. Yeah. Well, it was just a lot of, a lot of real specific questions. Like, what do you do when this happens in a scene? I'd be like, well, you know, and, <laughs> they're asking scene work questions. Yeah. And, uh, and then there got to be a point, the, the good manager of the store retired mm. and Another manager came and took over, and with that person, basically, came, when the good manager left, the new manager who came in didn't have the same. Um, what, what we realized was that we were being protected by the clout of this higher up manager who was sort of no nonsense. He, mm-hmm. you know, he didn't. If corporate had a dumb idea, he would not like abide it. Right. And he was sort of protected us from that. The last three years I was working at Barnes Noble Union Square were really miserable because, like, there were these district managers who would come in. And there mm-hmm. was at least one district manager who I feel confident this was the dumbest person I ever encountered <laughs> in my entire life <laughs> in any context, including <laughs> including the children at the, at the preschools that I worked at. <laughs> and this district manager, like... It was interesting because they would come in and they basically, there was one year where they came in and they had this idea, which was um, the Apple store had sort of started, um, they'd gotten rid of their cashiers and they were just, they do everything through their iPad or their mm-hmm. iPhone. They, and so they, that thing where you, they would just ring you up right, right. there. Well, Barnes & Noble had come out with Nook at this point and they were like trying to compete with Apple, <laughs> which is a very bad idea because it's not like they're... Very Barnes different Noble, product, too. Barnes & Noble uh, did a lot of damage to itself as a company by not embracing that you can you can live very well winning a silver or a bronze medal, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, and, but you can destroy yourself trying to 
somehow at, at, at all costs get the gold medal from the people who've earned it, mm-hmm. which is what they were basically doing. They were like trying to defeat Amazon or Apple. I'm wow. like, you can survive as a store if you'll just embrace that you are the boring brick and mortar bookstore. Yeah. That's you can go here and buy things and buy coffee, you know. And you were and, you said you were still doing really well in the time. The store was still doing really well. (laughs) And they had this period where we had a meeting one morning where they said, we have this new initiative and we've been working on this for two years where um, you're going, every employee is now going to carry a nook around with them so that they can help customers. And this way you don't have to go access the computer terminals to help a customer by looking something up. Mm -hmm. So at this point on the fourth floor, for instance, there were, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. There were, I think, seven or eight computer terminals on the fourth floor at that point. Mm-hmm. And if someone came up to you and said, hi, I'm looking for a book by so-and-so, and you didn't know who or what they were talking about, w- within 30 seconds, you could be at a computer terminal and looking it up very fast. It's a very fast system, etc. This was not a problem anyone had complained about. Um, now, they said, everyone's going to have a nook that they carry around with them. And... When someone comes up to you, they will no longer come up. You'll no longer go to these computer terminals. You'll just look it up you'll on just your look it nook. Up on the nook. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a couple of problems with this. One is that the nook is operating on the store's Wi-Fi, so the more people <laughs> are in the store, the, it slows down everybody's Wi-Fi in the store, including the other employees, mm-hmm. including the customers. Everything's right. draining the, the single Wi-Fi, whereas the computer terminals were wired, so they were they, they were not they were affected fast, by the yeah. same. Yeah, and. Also, the nooks would um, log you out after 30 seconds of use. And in order to log in, you had to do a touchscreen login that had to include uppercase, lowercase, number, and symbol. <laughs> right. And you know, you know what it's like when touchscreen typing? Every one of those takes, like, its yeah. own time. Now, uh, and then you're having to look things up. And also... Um, you there was no they had no method for how you're supposed to carry these because these are also at this point they're like hundreds of dollars each one of these nooks is a multi hundred dollar piece of merchandise that you can't just leave lying around because someone can steal it and then just use Mm -hmm. it as a nook tablet right so they didn't have like all the fancy cases yet no so and they hadn't thought about this even though they've been working on this program for two years to have people carry (laughs) nooks around so they they designed these pouches that we'd have to wear that then Within an hour of basically using these, everyone agreed this is a terrible idea and we don't need to do it. And because for 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 one thing, if you come up to me in a bookstore and I'm just a human being and you're like, I'm looking for a book called this by so-and-so, I look mm-hmm. you in the eye and I say, oh, I, I, let me go look it up. I walk over to a computer. This reads to you as me actively helping you, walking over to a computer. Right. If I pull out a nook and I start logging into the nook and it, the, the fastest you could get in was like 30 or 40 <laughs> seconds to get in, which is an eternity when you're standing. So you, you take the nook out of the pouch, right. you start looking it up, you're trying to log in and then you're looking it up and, this, and it's just, you're getting the wheel, you're getting like, it's taking all this time. Mm-hmm. It, re- it reads to the customer as if you're on your phone, ba- like you're kind of ignoring them. Yeah, like so who are you like... texting? What are you? What are you doing? <laughs> so it's immediately like, and it also makes it look like this nook is a really slow and clunky and inconvenient. <laughs> it's like uh, you're not exactly selling nooks by doing this. Right. And um, they're like, so "Fuck, they're I'm all... going to get an iPad." <laughs> and also, 
like your other work that you're doing, which is like scanning and shelving and doing all these other things, if now you have a nook in a pouch that hangs around <laughs> your neck, it clonks into every shelf while you're trying. So it was just like clonk, clonk, clonk. And then when you go want to go on your break, you have to find a manager to sign in, sign your nook back into the manager's <laughs> office. And so when you basically breaks, had a child, it sounds like. like you had a you had a young child to carry around with you. Then yeah, didn't and, fully and, cooperate. And just everyone going on their lunch breaks or on their coffee uh, coffee break or anything like that, you have to track down a manager. So you'd spend like 10, 15 minutes trying to find a manager who who was free to go down to the basement to log in your Nook. For during the, so it just added we knew this within an hour of having these nooks we realized yes. this is a disastrous bad idea that if you'd asked this was com- this was a program that someone far away who'd never worked in a bookstore came up with and they never asked anyone <laughs> who worked in any of the stores until they'd worked on this program for two years and within an hour <laughs> we're telling them please don't make us do this this is a solution to a problem that doesn't exist it creates dozens more problems right And stuff like that started happening all the time. Like, that's a big, complicated mess. And that's just one of many. So this, those last three years were my good job suddenly becoming a nightmare. The Mm -hmm. only thing, there was one period where I took the initiative. This was while I was a UCB performer. I said, I don't think the humor section is well served in these stores because it's down with like the games and the children's books. And I'm like, most of the things in the humor section are like essays by comedians, Mm -hmm. funny books by comedians, or they're comics. And on the fourth floor, we had graphic novels, which is comics. We had essays. We had fiction. We had memoirs. Mm -hmm. And all of those things like... You know, uh, um, you know, Amy Poehler's uh, Yes, Please. That was yeah. in the humor section. But Tina Fey's Bossy Pants was up in the biography section. And I'm like, it Weird. makes more sense to have the humor section up here. Every kind of, like, books of short stories by James Thurber that are in humor should be on the same floor as books of short stories by Mark Twain, even if they're in mm-hmm. different sections. Totally. So I can, and they were like, well, humor belongs near the toys and the children's books. And Most of that humor is not for kids. <laughs> it's not. It's not. It's not. <laughs> and so I, at this point, there was an awareness in the store that I was sort of like making some waves at UCB and that I knew <laughs> what I was talking about. And so I convinced a manager to let me move the humor section and just curate it. And for one brief, like it was six months to a year, Barnes Noble Union Square had a really good humor section on the fourth floor and I would I would order in so much stuff I would display it nicely there was all this nice stuff I and love that I was, did they build you a stage did you get some time to do you know I, I picture it like this golden this golden area and it's like you are dressed as the king and you're like welcome to my section I can I, I can perform and I can not, curate <laughs> not only was I not treated like a king for this act <laughs> I was lied to oh, by no. the same district manager who was dumber than anyone I'd ever met. She basically said to me, the sales um, have dropped <laughs> precipitously in the humor section. And I thought there's no way that's possible. No way. I, I filled the section up. 
I'm I'm only I'm shortlisting books as they sell. They're replenishing. There are books that would sell one copy a year that are now selling one copy a week. Mm-hmm. You know, there, I was just aware that like there were books that had never been in the store that are selling two copies a week. So right. I'm like, I I know that I'm adding. You've also worked there long enough to know what's selling. Like you're not. Yeah. <laughs> and and so they said no. There was a huge plummet in sales. Ugh. And I so I got someone, but they don't give you access to the full numbers of things. All right. And I got someone on the inside. I got someone to get me access. <laughs> I got a manager who was yeah. to get me access to the numbers. And I'm looking through them like I'm a like I'm an investigative journalist. I'm I'm scrolling through these numbers, and I realize <laughs> yes. From July of one year to July of the next year, there was a drop in sales. Uh, not in, uh, like, the sales rose on most titles. Okay. But overall, there was a drop. And the reason for this was, in one July, there was a surge of sales of Nora Ephron books. And Nora then Ephron the ne- died. Because she passed away. Yeah. And so, in that month... You have people fl- flocking to the section to buy every book by her. Mm-hmm. And this is a thing that happens. It, it, it happens for happy events. It happens for sad events. But it's a thing that happens. Sure. And it's an anomaly. And a year later, there was not the same rush of people buying Nora Ephron books. They were buying them in normal quantities. But everything else, the numbers were up. And I was like, oh, they don't know how to read these numbers. All mm-hmm. they see is it's high one year. It's low the next year. And, th- and they're not taking into account that the release of a Harry Potter book skews the numbers and you can't base your business just around that. Right. The fact of the matter is the numbers were up as far as what I was doing right. for the section in that they would have been even lower if they hadn't been doing all these things. But it taught me a really interesting lesson in terms of like, we live in a world where there's all this data and, you know, you hear things about like streaming services, like canceling a show for one reason or another, cause they're looking at all these metrics. Mm-hmm you have to be sure that you can trust the people who are reading the data. Right. Because if a very stupid person looks at numbers, they can think it's one thing that it absolutely is not. Yeah. And and at that point, I was a little bit like, I started booking a couple commercials. Mm-hmm. And I started realizing, I, I booked a commercial and uh, I realized at the end of the year that I made more money on that commercial than I had made working five days a week at the bookstore mm-hmm. for the whole year. And I thought, I can't, I would have stayed, I would have stayed at that bookstore for the rest of my life if it had <laughs> been the way it was when we had a good manager and yeah. I was left alone to do good work. I was so content there. That's nice. And I was lucky in a way, as crazy as it is to try to make a living in show business, I've been reasonably lucky the past few years mm-hmm. um and i finally quit when the chris gethard show got picked up for fusion and i was hired to be the warm-up uh, mm-hmm. entertainer and and at that point i'd had three years of what it felt like to be in a store where no one listens to you yeah and it's like corporate uh, like took over like the wave came in and they they didn't <sighs> And it, what's even worse about know it is... what was going on. I, I could have handled it if corporate came in and they'd been greedy and they only cared about money. I could have worked with that. Mm-hmm. because But these people who were managing it, what really shocked me, and it was a valuable thing to learn, was I grew up thinking, well, there's like creative people and people want to do a good job, and then there's people who only care about the bottom line and the money. Mm-hmm. 
What I didn't anticipate would be that there would be people who would fit into neither category. Maybe they cared about their own bonus, but they didn't care about whether the store was doing well. They just cared about the power of this is how we do it. Oh, I, I, I'm sad to hear the end of that story, but I'm, I'm actually very happy. I don't know many people who work in our industry who've had that kind of like day job that you really, you know, did like for, for so many years that really did support you while you were, you know, uh, moving on with your career in entertainment. Like, yeah, it was, it was, it was so good that it probably prevented me from trying to go back (laughs) into show. Cause even the first few years I was doing stuff at UCB, I was still adamant that I was not, I was still going to keep working in the bookstore. I did not want to get an agent or audition for things. (laughs) I, I had to be dragged kicking and streaming, screaming back into, um, auditioning for things and trying to, because up until, up until like 2013 ish, I was, um, happy at the bookstore and, Mm -hmm. and it's, and the entertainment industry is not, it can be good, but it's not. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I mean, there are aspects of it that are good. That's the title of this episode. (laughs) It can be good, but it's not. I mean, I don't like it. I I don't, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky and happy to be able to book work. Yeah. But I'm, but it's abusive. (laughs) I'm not, uh, I truly think that the moment that I start feeling like I like show business again, I'll never book another job. (laughs) I really do think there's a part of me that whenever I start getting my, my hopes up about stuff, yeah, it, it just the whole industry shrivels up and blows away for me. It's just like uh, I only do reasonably okay in show business when I'm kind of like I don't need this, I don't want it, I don't like it, and they're like, "When can you start?" Mm-hmm. Always, um, though, even with dumb little auditions, it's always the ones where I'm like, I forget what I went in for, or you know, I'm thinking about something else. Something else is important that day, and you go in for like a fucking one line, and then they're they're like, "You have a callback," and I'm like, "What? What? I didn't care at all. Like I didn't." Put any energy into it. I only book jobs when they are massively inconvenient for me. When I have other plans that yep. get ruined. Like when I went into audition for Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, <laughs> I genuinely was like, this is going to screw up my week if I book this. <laughs> and, and I thought there's no way I'm going to book it. But I was a little nervous because I'm like, I bet I will because I have plans. And this will really screw up my <laughs> plans. And then I booked it. And part of me was honestly like, great, but now my plans are all screwed up. <laughs> oh, no. And Plans like you're leaving like, town? Like you were like, I have a flight to cancel now. Well, something. like if I have like tickets to a concert or, you know, like it, it can be something small. Right. Or just anything I'm looking forward to. Like I have my own, like I had at the time, like a show at UCB that I'd been put a lot, invested a lot of effort in, but I wasn't going to make any money off of. Mm-hmm. But I'd spent like months preparing for like a thing. And then I have an audition for something and I'm like, God damn it. Now I have to go yeah. do, you know, this Emmy winning comedy, <laughs> a role, a role that has, has <laughs> saved me professionally multiple times over the past couple of years. Cause they keep bringing the character back and it's uh, kept me from losing my health insurance at various points. Not this year, but uh, uh, you know, it's Other like, I, sh- I should be, uh, I know where my ambition should be, but there's a part of me that is superstitious about if I start needing and counting on show business, it will not be there for me. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, pre-pandemic, it was always coaching. I always knew, like, oh, I can coach improv. If I need to, I can coach improv. That was my fallback. And mm-hmm. I guess, like, I haven't done any, like, Zoom coaching. I know I probably could. Maybe that would be... But I've managed to avoid that during the pandemic. But um, I... I just, it makes me nervous because I just, I think anytime that I count on show business, it, it's not there for me. And when I think of when I was most satisfied professionally, I like having done things. Like I mm-hmm. always like it when I, like I booked a, a role in the blacklist that aired a couple Fridays ago. Mm-hmm. I, and I enjoyed filming it, and I am happy that I did it, but I always enjoy it more after it's done than I do when I've booked it, and I have that, like, I always like having done something. Right. Well, but, I think that, uh, you know, your Tom Hanks story seemed to have, you know, left a little more in your Brit, where it's like, once I've shot the scene, uh, you know, maybe I'll get edited out, maybe not, but uh, once I know I, I have done the work I was commissioned to do, <laughs> like, yeah. it's out of your hands, so but that the, must be nicer. But, the, the, but the, in terms of actual jobs, the period where I was really happy at the bookstore, I was more fulfilled. I mean, the most fulfilling that I've, the most fulfilled I've been has always been stuff like UCB or the early days of the Gathered Show, where it mm-hmm. wasn't for money; it was for the creative, exp- doing something creative at a high level, and 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 having a good audience uh, be receptive to it. Sure. The second money is part of it, something does go away from it. Like it's, uh, I've never gotten paid to do comedy or acting. And thought, oh, this is as good as the thing I did for no money. You know, like, there's always some wow. aspect of it when you're getting paid for it that's a little bit like, oh, that's why they're paying me for it. Because this is taking all day. And, yeah. you know, like, I had to come here at, like, 6 in the morning and wait and not quite, uh, you know, like, it's not. Whereas whenever I've done a show and I've been like, that show is the most fun thing I've done all year. It's almost always something that's either a money loser or a no money proposition to begin with. Right. Because it's all you. It's all your brain and your creativity. And you put, you know, you get to do it with your friends and it's something you're like so super proud of. It's not like you're reading someone else's lines, hoping you're, you know, and, giving and them maybe, what they need. And maybe, maybe I'll crack that at some point. Maybe there will come a point where I will book the job in comedy but like when I was when I would do a show you at will. UCB, when I would do a show at UCB and it's for no money and it would be the most satisfying thing because it's a great you know you'd be in this great venue you're in Manhattan and you have this great audience, and then you'd get like I'd get like a Turco gig that's for money, and you'd mm-hmm. realize immediately like oh. Like, that's why we're getting paid for this, because you'd go to some location, the audience would be terrible, you'd do a show, it would be, like, not good, and they would not like it, and you're like, that's why I just got paid several hundred dollars, mm-hmm. is because uh, you couldn't do this for free, like, it's, it's too miserable. I, I, forever, I forever have in my mind the, the, like, gif of Don Draper throwing the money at Peggy on Mad Men. <laughs> As like, that's what it feels like to be in show business is like, you got to go here at this time in the morning. You got to be there all day. You're released when we say you're released. You go on set. You're trying to do it. It's you not eat when like, we say you eat. Yes. You eat what we have for, <laughs> yep. for you. Uh, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. 
Well, uh, this was inspiring. Honestly, thank you for these stories were amazing. Your episode, this very much reminds me of Griffin Newman's episode. He had wonderful stories about all of his jobs. And I know you guys work together a lot. Yes. So obviously oh. you're, you're brilliant storytellers together. But um, I, I'm really, you know, it's inspiring to me that you you did have another job that wasn't just in entertainment that really fulfilled you. Because I think so many people think nothing else will fulfill me. And it's like, that's not true. And you're so on the money about the jobs you don't care. If you don't put so much pressure on yourself, they will come and they do come along. It's just don't beg for it. Don't don't look desperate. (laughs) Can I tell you, I'll tell you two quick celebrity Barnes Noble stories. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a, a, a rapid fire, a couple of quick Celebrity Barnes Noble Union Square stories. Love, Love it. it. Yeah. Um, uh, Obama came to the store when when because uh, um, there'd be events at the store all the time, but it was a daytime event. Uh, this was when uh, the Audacity of Hope. Okay. I think that was the book that was out. Um, and he came to the store, so I got to be like within ten feet of Obama at one point, where it was like I was like so waving cool. at him, and he's like waving. Uh, <laughs> this is before he had declared candidacy. I think um, there was a period where there was one time when Wallace Shawn came into the store. I was talking to a friend of mine. Wallace Shawn came into the store and he was looking for a book and he couldn't find it. And I went over to the shelf and I found it immediately. <laughs> and he said, you found it. That's unbelievable. And he said it with the same, he didn't say inconceivable, but he said it with the same <laughs> cadence. And the, yeah. the friend who was visiting town who was observing this, uh-huh. I just saw his jaw drop. And he's like, you got him to say something that sounded like the thing he says. Um, oh, that's awesome. There was, um, there was a time when uh, U2 had a private event in the store. And I almost got to be the elevator operator, even though I didn't know how to operate the elevator. But I didn't want to say no because... <laughs> I thought, oh, I'll just get to be in an elevator. There was like the freight elevator that you operate with a crank. <laughs> and they were like, Connor, you're in charge of the freight elevator. And I didn't say, I don't know how to operate it <laughs> uh, because I really just wanted to. And so I came very close to possibly getting stuck in an elevator with you two. At the last minute, I got pulled <laughs> off the job. Um, but I did get to see you two who were all like shorter than me and they all looked like my Irish uncles. <laughs> it's really weird how much Bono looked like one of my uncles just dressed up like Bono. Oh, um, that's funny. They're all short, too. I don't. I wouldn't know. I've, I've heard Bono short, yeah. At least Bono was. Bono mm-hmm. was like, it, it shocked me when we walked past. I'm like, this is not how you, <laughs> you, you look when you hump the camera. Um, I, ran for, I ran for president on the Chris Gethard show. And then a few years later, when Hillary Clinton's book came out, uh, this is post Secretary of State, pre uh, running for president, and winning the popular vote. Okay. Um, she comes to the store, and I had spent several years running for president as a bit <laughs> on the Chris Gathered show. I was not approved to work on the fourth floor that day because the Secret Service had put my name on a list. That oh my god! They, they approved who could be on the Stop. floor. Stop. <laughs> So That's I was allowed amazing. To work the but I was I had to work on the ground floor for the only day it ever I ever didn't work on the fourth floor was because I'm sure they did a Google search and they're like, whatever this is, we don't understand it. Yeah, what did they um, think you were gonna do? Like security ask you for running advice or something? Well the fun the funny thing was <laughs> I uh 
there was still a moment, and this is maybe says a bad thing about the the gaps in our national defense, but (laughs) there was a point where the staff from the first floor were allowed to like sneak up and go through the line and get our books signed. Oh, okay. And so, uh, and they weren't like checking who we were or anything. They were just like, these are employees. And so I was like, we were getting, I was getting to like run through the line and get a book signed by Hillary Clinton. And (laughs) I thought, I want to say something to her, but I don't want her to feel weird about it. But I want to feel, I want to feel like I've included her in my bit without her realizing it just for my own sake. (laughs) So I went through the line real fast. I handed the, she's like signing the book and then she's like shaking hands. And I said to her, Oh, I know it's hard running for president. And she laughed that that loud, like, Hillary laugh. And I thought, <laughs> this counts. I'm in character as my bit, saying I know it's hard running for president, <laughs> and I just sound like I'm a normal person relating to her. Um, and awesome. then there was one other time when I was really helpful to Maggie Gyllenhaal. Oh, love her. I She came into the store. I always kind of prided She's myself cool. on whenever there were celebrities... I don't like to go up to celebrities or make them feel weird. I always mm-hmm. feel like the biggest gift that you can give a celebrity is to try to treat them, yeah. give them the gift of a normal human interaction. That's mm-hmm. how I ha- was in restaurants. And we had huge, I mean, we had Beyonce come in, like huge celebrities. And we were like, nope, they're yeah. just ordering a steak. <laughs> there was there was one celebrity who came into the store that I asked for an autograph, which was uh, Michael uh, Williams, who played Omar on The Wire. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I ran downstairs and had him. I heard he was in the store, and I ran down and had him sign my Barnes and Noble Nook name tag because I thought I still have it. I thought this is the dumbest thing to get Omar from the Wire yeah. to sign, but it was all I had. Um, and fuck the Nook at this point. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's like Omar coming to kill the Nook. And um, but when Maggie Gyllenhaal came in, she was looking for when they had that complete New Yorker. That was that okay. I believe was on DVDRs that no longer like if you bought this however many years ago, no no operating system will will play. Show you. <laughs> you have to get you have to still have your like 2011 or whatever uh, um, uh, computer to run this thing. <laughs> but she came into the store and she was looking for the complete New Yorker, and I saw that we might have one copy of it in the basement, and so I said. And I would have done this for anybody. Like, now, it wasn't because she was a celebrity, but I, I felt really good about the fact that I knew that I wasn't coming across as, like, I'm doing this because you're right. a movie star. I'm, I was just like, I think it's in the basement. Let me go check and see if we have it. I said, how about this? I said, are you, I can meet you down by the elevator on the ground floor in, like, 10 minutes if that works. And she's like, yeah, that's fine. And... She was very friendly, very nice. Mm-hmm. And then I went and I found this copy of it. And then I remember meeting Maggie Gyllenhaal on the ground floor and being like, oh, here it is. And then immediate, immediately, like not lingering, just passing it off. me. And she's like, oh, my God, thank you so much. And I was like, hey, no problem. And then immediately like rushing back up to the fourth floor and feeling like that was 100% successful as <laughs> customer service and as like that was treating someone well without it seeming like it was because... Uh, you're in a Batman movie. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it was. It was. That's a difficult balance. I could pull off yeah. something like that. I felt really good. Like mm-hmm. that. That was just a taste of what it feels like to be treated normally by a normal person. 
Yeah. You're welcome. Even though, even though I'm, the very fact that I'm thinking of those ways it betrays the fact that I'm not a normal person in that right. sense. <laughs> I felt like I, I was a good actor and uh, customer service person. You killed it. Point. It sounds like yeah. you nailed those those experiences. I, I remember you know, I was the hero once when uh, Daniel Radcliffe came into my restaurant and he was waiting to use the bathroom and it was locked because they were single stalls and there were girls who got up from a table to go and ask for autographs while he's waiting to like piss. And my manager was like, can you do something about it? And I I wasn't like a huge fan. I knew he was super famous and I just went up and said, excuse me, do you mind just like going back to your table? Uh, he's, He's waiting for the restroom. And he was like, thanks. And I was like, I'm a fucking hero. I just saved <laughs> Daniel Radcliffe from... Uh, he had a good pee because of me. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's great. It, you know, it, it's... When I was in high school or college, I saw a special about Andy Kaufman on that aired on, like, NBC, and it featured this segment where he was, like, working as, like, a busboy in a Hollywood diner while he was on Taxi. Mm-hmm. And I don't know for sure, because you can never know with Andy Kaufman things, whether he only whether he only worked there on the days when they had like a news crew, like like how much he fully committed to the bit. Mm -hmm. But at the time, I believed I only grew to doubt it later on. At the time, I believed that he really had a job as a busboy. Well, and I I would like to still believe that because. Part of what I thought was great about that bit was like he was saying, look, just because I'm on a TV show, I'm no better than anybody else. I work. I, I, this is an honest work. I'm not ashamed of this, whatever like that. And I remember thinking this is both really funny and also really inspiring. <laughs> yeah. And the whole time I worked at Barnes & Noble, I really had a philosophy. I had two philosophies that I held in my head. One was that um, my approach to dealing with customers was – how would I want my parents to be treated if they came into this big bookstore not knowing where anything was? Mm-hmm. And un- and unless a customer um, was rude to me or to someone else, unless they, unless they were actively unpleasant, I always tried to think, how would I want my parents to be treated if they were in the store right now? So being patient with them, being kind to them. And that was like my North Star for how to treat customers. That's so sweet and important. That's nice. And the other thing was thinking about Andy Kaufman working, uh, talking about the dignity of honest work. And I never felt, I, I felt like I was a failure in the sense of show business, that I had tried to have a show business career and everything I tried to do making a living creatively had failed. So I did feel like a failure in all of the things that were my hopes and dreams. But I never felt like, working at the bookstore was part of that failure. I felt like I'm good at this job and I like it here. And that never spilled over into the column of, I never, I never let any of those feelings flow over into that quadrant. Mm -hmm. I always felt whether or not, you know, Andy Kaufman actually worked as a busboy. Part of me thinks, Oh, he probably didn't. He probably just went there and they (laughs) staged this bit and and he probably didn't believe that. He probably didn't want to spend all that time busting tables. But I really did have that feeling and still do have that feeling that, like, if you have a job and you, and it's simple and it's basic and you can find your way to be as good at it as you possibly can, that, that there is, like, a real dignity in that that's, yeah. like, to be valued. Yeah. 
And also, you're you'll you'll be happier. I think you're a happier person when you find when you when you're satisfied with your personal work. I don't know. It's it's hard for people to do nowadays, and I I feel like it's 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 nice to hear. It really is, and and it's and I want to believe Andy Kaufman bus tables. I'd like to believe that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a there's a part of me that does actively think like if. If I find myself five or ten years down the road exhausted by what I'm trying to do now, how do I find the thing that makes me feel like I did when things were going well at the bookstore? How do mm-hmm. I find a, that again? You will. Um, maybe. And hopefully you won't have to because you'll be, you know, you'll be putting out also the shows that you said feel, you know, feel as good as the free shows at UCB, but they won't be free, you know, because people will have to pay you for your time and I mean, we'll see. We'll see. We'll, see. <laughs> we'll yeah. see. I know everything's up in the air. Hey, I started a podcast called Unemployed, so I'm always ready to 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 go back. You know what I mean? Yep, so, yep, yep. yeah. <laughs> this was so fun. Thank you so much for all these stories and for talking to us and inspiring us. Like it really, you really brought a lot today. I appreciate you oh, for being here. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy to talk about all this stuff. I could t- I could keep talking boring bookstore stories for six hours. It's really. Uh, I loved a, it. I loved it. I love that you got to meet Obama and you know have a moment together. That's huge. That's awesome. I, one of the things that I think is is a, a kind of a funny joke just to myself is that <laughs> on one of my bookshelves I have uh, a copy of a book by Obama and a book by Chris Gethard, and the Obama one is signed and the Chris Gethard one is not. And oh I my always, god! <laughs> I always think that's funny because I always think like ah, it would have been. <laughs> It's so easy. I get this signed by Gethard any time, but I think it's funny that I I, I don't have that one yeah. signed. Uh, I love that. Maybe leave it is. that way. You know, just... I, I think it's funnier that way. That yeah. it's like the, the book by my friend is unsigned, but the book by Obama is very much signed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, thank you so much for being here, Connor. Where can uh, everybody uh, listen to you, tell more stories, and find you and see you? Uh, there's 20 episodes of Dead Eyes. We're working on the third season right now, um, cool. which hopefully will be out before too long. And uh, the George Lucas Talk Show. Uh, you can find all the old episodes on YouTube, and uh, hopefully we'll be back before too long. That that is also that's on hiatus right now while we sort of wait to figure out what our next step is. Cool, awesome, yeah. and you're on Twitter you too. You're very on funny Twitter, on Twitter at Connor Ratliff on Twitter. If you spell my name right, you got it. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here, and uh, this you. was great. I loved it. Oh my god. Now I got to go back to that Barnes and Noble. Now I feel like I know about the history. Now I yeah. You know, I was just yeah. there the other day. I bought a new uh, notebook. You know, no. Look at you, Ellen. Yeah. I when I go back there, I always kind of try to sneak in and sneak out and not be recognized by people <laughs> I used to work with. Uh, I feel I feel weird about it because I feel I do feel like when I'm there, I'm supposed to be working. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it's just like uh, I gotta get out of here. Yeah, that's tough. Totally. Well, at least you still like going there. You know, it, it yeah. wasn't. Well, all right, uh, cool. especially especially now, especially now that it feels like browsing in a bookstore uh, is a safe activity. Totally, one of the safest. Yes, yes, you can touch them. That was it. That was another episode of Unemployed. Honestly, that was a dream episode. I was with him in his stories. I was at that book signing with Hillary Clinton. Like, didn't you feel like you were a part of it? Yeah. I, I'm I, loving that we get to reflect on it now that we're doing this outro instead of an intro. Yeah, I love it when people bring celebrity stories. I didn't um, 
Didn't expect that to come from Connor, but it was I, awesome. It was a nice little it was surprise. So fun. I know. Well, yeah, I bet there were probably 20 more stories because the flagship like Barnes and Noble in New York, you know, that's a big that's a big place. I bet everybody does their like book release or signing or talk, you know. If you got Obama there, you're gonna have other people who we like there. Totally. So, yeah. That's cool. Oh, I, I was with it. Wait, we, we were talking we were thinking about though how he likes to hide. He goes, when he goes into the bookstore, he wants to like, just go in, quick in hide. and out because you know, yeah, it might be a little awkward. I, that, I t- so totally relate to that. A lot of jobs. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, the first job that I got in New York was handing out audio guides at MoMA. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely the type of place where people who work there will work there like forever for like 10 years or you know, so okay. every time I've been back to MoMA, I like avoid the audio guide desk because I just feel awkward about running into people I Did work with. Did you not get along with them? Or you know what? Like, I, I don't just, want to catch up. This is the thing. Now that I'm thinking about it, like, it's such an irrational thing to like be avoiding these people. But I just that's I am just my personality sometimes is I don't want to run into people. That's why I don't like I don't want to take a train anymore or like go anywhere. I I love like there were so many times I would avoid people like at restaurants or like on a train like people I went to high school. Oh my God. Avoiding people on a train. That's something I totally forgot I used to do before the pandemic. (laughs) Yes. Uh, are I, you a changed woman now? Would you would you say hi to me on a train if you saw me? Honestly, I do think I think the pandemic has changed me where I'm actually happy to run into people now. Wow. Unless it's the MoMA employees. Well, I don't know. I haven't been back since Oh, okay. COVID. Well you'll so. have to test this theory to see if you're a changed woman now. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah, I I feel like I am still fine hiding my, you know, now I got that mask, baby. I can put that mask on and then it's as if they don't know it's me. Oh, (laughs) right. And I don't know it's them because I can't see that well. You know, I'm fully covered up. Well, you could go up Uh, to them and pull it down and be like, remember me? When I go to Boston, um, I actually have the opposite. I love going to the restaurants that I worked at in Boston in college because there are people who still work there who were there when I was there because they're pretty fancy restaurants, you know, and a lot of them are career, uh, you know, like restaurant industry employees or managers or servers and bartenders. And I love going back to visit because I feel like, I don't know, it just feels like, oh my God, I'm in college again. Like, I'm so young. Remember me? And they're like, wow, and you live in New York. I'm like, everything feels exciting to talk about because I haven't seen these people in so long. Yeah. So, and, and they're so sweet when I come in, you know, they'll send me like a little, like a little dessert or something. Oh, that's you know? nice. And, See, yeah. I wouldn't get that at the audio. De- I wouldn't like the audio guides are free anyway. So <laughs> they wouldn't be like, today you get two. <laughs> One for each ear. Um, although you get two ears anyway. Uh, but you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, no, I love I love going to visit there. You know, there are some places I felt like when people came to visit at my job, I was like, oh. Yeah, you're, you're, you've moved on. You're so much better than us now. Like if you're nice and you're kind and you're excited to go back, it's a different vibe than. If yeah, you're- I think that's like what I, was in my brain. Like I didn't want to go back to the desk and and see these people who are obviously stuck in a place that yeah. they don't necessarily love and be like, remember me? Like I left all of you behind. That was <laughs> like what I was. I'm but in I'm hot shot now. <laughs> 
like I mean, not working at the audio guy desk. But I don't know. I, it's just a mindset. Like I should have just thought, you know, it'd be nice to see these people I worked with and say hi. That's all. It doesn't have to That's be all. anything deeper than that. Yeah. Yeah. Ellen, this was such a great episode. It was a longer episode, and I, I loved every moment of it. I really did. I had to stop him and say it was like Griffin because it, it did remind me of that, and it's so clear they work together. They're so passionate about, like, you know, the stories that they tell. It yeah, really totally. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, guys, you know what to do here. I am uh, I'm unemployed again. Ellen, I am unemployed again. We'll get into that in the next episode a little bit more. Yeah. But, uh, guys, we would love for you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash unemployed podcast. If we can build that up, if there's stuff you want to hear, you want to see, you want the juicy details, stories, let us know. We are available at, at your, you know, on Twitter. You can write us a DM. You can send us a message on Instagram if that's your preferred uh, means of communication. Or email us at theunemployedteam at gmail.com. Also, send us your resumes if you're feeling brave enough to have us uh, discuss them on air. We don't have to say your name. You can let us know what you prefer or don't prefer. Uh, maybe we'll find you a job. Maybe someone will fucking hear it and they'll be like, oh my God, star resume. Or not. Um, <laughs> and make sure to listen to the other episodes. Also, give us a little cute rating. You know what I mean? Give us a little five-star rating. Maybe a review cute it. One. A yeah. cute rating. A cute, you know, like even when you're like, I love this podcast. It's so fun. I feel happy listening to it. That's an amazing, amazing, um, what's it called? Not rating. Uh, why am I blank? What, what, that's an amazing review. Yes. That's a beautiful <laughs> review. I can't talk anymore. And I, I'm out of it. It's just so nice to hear. You know, it really is. I read them. I love reading them. And it helps p pump the podcast up on the charts, on the mm -hmm. charts, hot charts. All right. That's it. Make sure you follow us at Unemployed Podcast. No vowels on Twitter and uh, and listen to the other episodes. And I hope you have a beautiful night, day, morning, uh, hopefully work from home.